The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is Dr. Carl Blanks. And Ben Jessen. We are the co-authors of Making Websites Win. Apply the customer-centric methodology that has doubled the sales of many leading websites. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas in order to succeed in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. Also, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Blinkist. Blinkist is an app that takes the key insights from the best nonfiction books and distills them into a format that you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes on your smartphone. Several of the books featured on the Marketing Book Podcast are on Blinkist. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer for Marketing Book Podcast listeners where you can sign up for free at Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast. Blinkist is spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, and if you opt for the paid version, you'll get an additional 20% off, but only if you go to Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast, or just click the link at MarketingBookPodcast.com. And now, on with the show. Today, we welcome Dr. Carl Blanks and Ben Jessen to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about their book, Making Websites Win. Apply the customer-centric methodology that has doubled the sales of many leading websites. Dr. Carl Blanks and Ben Jessen help websites win. They are the founders of Conversion Rate Experts, the world's leading agency for conversion rate optimization, also known as CRO, which is a term coined by them at their company back in 2007. CRE, Conversion Rate Experts, has worked in over 80 different verticals in nine languages and in 22 countries, helping to optimize the profits of some of the most sophisticated Silicon Valley web companies, as well as many blue chip enterprises, financial institutions, media companies, and fast-growing startups. And interesting fact, CRE is the recipient of a Queen's Award for Enterprise for Outstanding Achievement in Innovation, the UK's top award for businesses. The award was given for CRE's work codifying the methodology that the world's leading companies now use to improve their websites. Carl and Ben, congratulations on making websites win, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, Douglas. It's nice to be here. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having us. <laughs> so I've just got to ask, one day the Queen of England just showed up at your office and said, you guys are friggin' awesome? We had to go to her. <laughs> wow. It's how it, that's how it works. Oh, yes. <laughs> wow. 
Boy, you actually got to meet her? We got to, uh, yes, we got oh, invited to goodness. Buckingham Palace and there was a, there was a big um, formal reception in the state rooms. And uh, yes, her and quite a lot of the other royals, actually. It was oh, amazing. My goodness. So you, you went to Buckingham Palace, you met all the royalty, and now you're on the Marketing Book Podcast, My How You've Fallen. It keeps getting better for us, Douglas. Don't put yourself down. <laughs> well, have you know, you faith in yourself. Yes. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't have a self-esteem problem. But let's talk about your company. You you've worked with, I think it's called Google, uh, Facebook, <laughs> Amazon, Apple. W- when are you all going to really break out and start working with some of the better-known companies? <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? Oh. The um. Yeah, actually, along those lines, one of our strategies, and it's kind of a strategy that we recommend to our clients, is to is to begin by mocking up what you would like your website to look like in five years' time. And uh, when we started out, we actually uh, we actually drew up, you know, the clients that we would like to have and 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 the kind of company we'd like to become, just as a kind of vision. So that we were, what we did was in keeping with that. And with all those companies you mentioned, it was them who contacted us rather than vice versa. So we didn't, we didn't reach out to them in any way. We just, every single one of those was a, an email out of the blue oh. and us, us cheering when that email came in from out of the blue. Amazing. Proving that our website had done what it was designed to do. Yes. Oh, wonderful. And also I was heartwarmed to see that the, all the profits from this book go to feeding chronically hungry children through the the charity Mary's Meals, which is uh, an organization that uh, sets up school feeding programs in, in some of the world's poorest communities, where uh, I gather specifically where hunger and poverty prevent the children from gaining an education. It's, it's an amazing charity in terms of the leverage it gets. What they, what they do is they discover that lots of families don't send their kids to school because the, because the kids are needed to do work. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so what they discovered was by offering a free school lunch, then the family would actually, it would be an incentive to send their kids to school because at least that's one meal that's already paid for. And so by offering the school lunch, the kids not only get, and, uh, get the food and the nutrition, but they also get the education bundled in with it. Mm. And we're going to include a link to uh, Mary's Meals in your episode show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. Well, let me just say the book was endorsed by many notable marketers, including uh, two former guests on the Marketing Book Podcast, Sean Ellis, co-author of Hacking Growth, and Rand Fishkin, author of uh, Lost and Founder and the founder of Moz. And I just, I knew I was headed in the right direction when I started reading it. But let me also say, and I don't know if you all hear this much, it's a beautiful book. It was very nice paper, beautifully bound. And it was the first book I've not needed a bookmark for because it had a beautiful white ribbon, (laughs) like, well, like a Bible, perhaps. I'm glad you appreciated that because we spent ages on it. We're about to um, get some more of them printed on that in that format because we we've sold out of the um, the ones. Did, you, did yours have a slip cover as well, Douglas? No, was it, it was a sort of a laminated oh, okay. cover, very very beautifully done. And, and when I was there, I spilled coffee on it, I cleaned it right up. So uh, clearly, it was done for me. <laughs> and actually, we we AB tested two different um, printing companies. So you got the one from uh, the European company. Oh wow! Well, <laughs> well, good for me. Let me ask you one other thing. Did you use American spellings in this book? Yes. Everything, because the web is primarily American, then oh. we write our, we write all our materials in American English 
Right. Because I, when I read one, uh, there's a publisher in London called Kogan Page, had a number of authors on. And when uh, I read an English spelling, it, it always uh, throws me off just a bit. And I read through this and I thought, either they did it in American English or, because you guys are all about websites, it was a responsive design book where if you read it in America, it had American spellings. And if you read it in England, <laughs> I'm sure you guys are working on that kind of technology. Well, let's, uh, let's move on. I just want to read one quick excerpt. Most websites lose, almost all of them. Many of them never make a profit. Like chocolate teapots, they look nice but flop as soon as you pour hot customers into them. Others are successful at first and then get pushed out of business by their competitors. This book is about how to buck the trend to make websites that customers love and that are outrageously profitable. It has the ability to transform your business and your career. Ben and Carl, before we get to talking about CRO, I just want to go backward very briefly, just a bit, to set the stage and review not the evolution of man, but the evolution of websites. And you say in the book that the majority of web design and copywriting is still in what you call the pre-scientific age, and we're going to talk about that. But if you could... Uh, take us down the memory lane about the evolution of websites, uh, meaning how uh, in the beginning it was designers and then it was all about search engines and now it's still about companies. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, one, um, I guess one advantage that we've got is we've been working on the web for an incredibly long time. And um, I think I designed my first website in about 1998. So we've, we've kind of had the privilege really of seeing the web evolve and, um, and one thing that's kind of interesting is in the 90s, websites were designed for designers, really. And um, their goals were typically to use the project as an opportunity to learn the technologies. So back then, it was things like Flash. Um, you know, HTML was pretty new and there were lots of you know, new software and things to try out. And it was basically a competition of populating portfolios. You know, mm -hmm. back then, all the CSS galleries had the theme of the week or the design of the week. And websites were, I guess, a thing of um, like creative expression almost from the designers <laughs> and, a, and a way of kind of experimenting with all the, the tools and the technology. Career-driven design. <laughs> Very it? much so. Right. Yeah. And it seems like a lot of the people working on them might have come out of the, the graphic design background. That was, that was my experience. And, and me too. And that's, my, and that's my background too. You know, I, I kind of designed offline before um, designing websites and... And the interesting thing is back then, you remember how horrific these websites were to use. They had little flash animations before you could even enter the homepage. They had banners that had like animated flames in the background and, you know, all kinds of weird and wonderful conventions. And, and they kind of felt like just designers playing around. But um, that's, that's what it felt like back then. Mm -hmm. And then um, as soon as people, I guess, got serious about transacting online and actually selling online, it very much became focused on ranking well in the search engines. And most web designers, you know, in the early 2000s were mainly concerned with how to make their web page SEO friendly and how to make it rank in Google. And as a result, you had really text heavy pages with loads of links, loads of gray text on white backgrounds to try and trick Google's bots. Again, the kind of primary goal for lots of websites was to just rank well in Google. Mm -hmm. And to get lots of visitors. So you, so you had loads of flash sites with keywords stuffed into them. <laughs> and I guess as, as more people started in, to invest in websites and, and more businesses adopted selling online, 
lots of websites started being created by committee, really, in terms of what the companies wanted the website to look like. So they create briefs and specifications and everyone would be sitting in their ivory tower discussing what a homepage should look like and what it should say. And, um, and for an awfully long time, the poor visitors, the people that actually mm. visit these websites every day and are trying to actually achieve something when they're online have been totally dismissed. And they're kind of the forgotten stakeholder in all of this. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and we've, we've seen that over a period of time and it's still nowhere near where it needs to be. But thankfully, things are finally heading in the right direction. Well, let me ask you then the big question, which is really the topic of the entire first section of four in your book. Why is most web design done wrong? Two things, really. I guess the first thing is uh, most changes to websites are not measured to see whether they improved the website or broke the website. <laughs> and, and when I say broke, I mean produced fewer conversions, fewer sales, downloads, signups, whatever the website's primary goal is. But even today, you know, the tools have been around for over 10 years now. The technology is there. But even today, most changes on websites are not measured to see whether they were effective or not. And that is it's malpractice. <laughs> That's what that is. But it's, it's, it's upsettingly common. Um, and the other thing is when changes are made to a website and even companies that do test changes, the changes don't tend to be designed with research from how users actually use the website in mind. And they're not necessarily changes that are either going to help the customer or going to help the business. They're kind of almost, again, just playing around, adopting best practices or copying a competitor. Or, you know, you you saw some kind of growth hack at a conference, so you just give that a try. And it's without any thought whatsoever for how the, the real people, the visitors that are on your website every day, the problems that they're trying to solve, the objections that they have, the issues that they face. And, and it's upsettingly common to to avoid both of those disciplines, really. Well, it's interesting because you say the most successful websites, everybody ready for this? Focus on their customers. <laughs> and yet, this customer-centric design, and I see it in marketing, the, the, the focus on the customers is just surprisingly rare. You've started to touch on some of the reasons why, but for those websites that are more customer-centric, what is it that's different about them, uh, their approach, or maybe they want the way they run their companies? The first one is that what customers don't care about is the flashy kind of portfolio site style of website. And, we can, and you know that just by testing it. So um, I'd say... The most successful companies designed for for function and not aesthetics. Um, it's lovely. If you go into a web agency, it's really nice to see beautiful sites with loads of animations and fancy features. The reality is that tends to be when you do a user test and ask customers, that's not what they're looking for. And all of that, all of that aesthetic stuff, you know, it's nice. You think, oh, well, it's nice to have. Why not have aesthetics as well? But the reality is the cost of adding all those features often just, you know, absolutely stops the company from being able to iterate and give customers what they do care about, which is usually functionality, usability, um, delivering the information that they want at the time they want it. And and that does require an iterative approach. Yes, and I want to dig into that. First, I want to talk about CRO, conversion 
rate optimization. But first, I just have to share one thing with you. I was on a panel discussion about social media in Washington, D.C. a couple years ago, and I was answering this one question, and evidently, I introduced the concept of, of a conversion to this group as part of this discussion. They were talking about any number of things. Anyway, the panel went well, great. Uh, it was a great discussion, lots of people there. And this one fellow came up to me after everything was over, and he said to me something like, you know, I really was interested in everything you had to say, and I, I agreed with everything until you started talking about religion. <laughs> and he thought I was talking about a religious conversion. And I just want all the listeners out there to know who have not yet read this book, that's not what this book is about when they talk about uh, conversions. So, with that said, please explain what conversion rate optimization is all about. A conversion is basically the purpose of the website. So, a company will identify what the purpose of the website is, and usually that's a, a combination of the visitor's goals and the company's goals. It's, it's where those two Venn diagrams, Venn, uh, circles overlap. And and basically, the conversion is whatever the purpose of the website is. It's If the website's purpose is to sell something, it's that. If it's to get sign-ups or if it's to persuade people of a certain thing, it's it, it kind of sounds obvious. But whatever the company who runs the website wants the website to do, then that's the, you know, the definition of conversion. And conversion rate is just what percentage of visitors actually, you know, actually do what the website owner wants them to do. Put like that, it's it's almost sounds kind of so obvious that you know conversion rate optimization is nothing more than getting visitors to do getting the website to do its entire reason for being. But is that the rub where a lot of companies can't agree on what the purpose of their website is? It's it, it's even worse than that. A lot of companies don't really think about it or don't really treat it as a goal. And end up getting lost in um, just kind of brand marketing vagueness, and so they aren't. And so everyone kind of forgets. And sometimes companies just don't want it to be the, the case. You know, it's it's very hard to make a website that converts. So sometimes the people designing the site just kind of decide that it's more about you know the career driven design or the or the branding or whatever, and decide they're not going to measure that side but uh, but all the most successful websites are you know people use them customers use them because they you know because they work and it's just quite it still astonishes us how many websites aren't focused on you know on the website doing what it is you know it's the equivalent to if, if you had a car for example being able to go from a to b and drive is obviously the the primary goal of a car but there are a lot of websites where if they were a car, they wouldn't move whatsoever. <laughs> right. They'd be like they would be a beautiful Ferrari with the doors welded shut and no engine in it. Absolutely. <laughs> and the other thing is with web marketing is that it's not enough to, for a car just to say, well, it does kind of work. It goes at 30 miles an hour because so much of web marketing, the economics of the business mean that you know the the it's winner takes all. So a car that you know, if a car goes at 70 miles an hour, but its competitors can go 80, then that car just won't appear. You know, it, it'll just get pushed out of existence. Might as well not go 30. 
Exactly. So, so because it's winner takes all, then all of the successful, if you look at all of the top 100 websites, all of them are like, you know, the website equivalent of Formula One and all of the ones that only, you know, travel at 10 miles an hour slower disappear from existence. Mm hmm. It's not a nice to have. It's an essential. It's a prerequisite. And that's the thing that surprises us is that when when people look at you know, so much of web design, uh, when you look at, you know, so many web designed websites that, that aren't optimized towards conversion, they look absolutely nothing like the world's most successful websites. They are run in a way that's completely opposite to the most successful websites. And it's surprising how many website owners haven't noticed that. Well, what do you say? I'm, I'm guessing that you may get this reaction sometime. And that is when a company says, well, it's not like we're selling things on our website. I'm wondering if that betrays a certain lack of understanding about CRO, but what, what do you say to folks about who might say that and who aren't necessarily supposed to be selling on their website, but they could still be getting a better handle on what their conversion should be? I guess if, if someone were to say, you know, my website's not for selling stuff, our response would be, well, what is it for? <laughs> because whatever it's for, then that should be the goal of the website. So if they say, oh, it's not to sell stuff, it's to educate people about my services or to get them to download my or to watch my videos, mm -hmm. to get them to subscribe to my newsletter. It, it doesn't have to be about sales, but if you were to say, well, when you went and paid all this money for the website, what were you hoping it would achieve? Whatever their answer is, then the website should be optimized for that. So yeah. it's, um, and I think it's a mistake a lot of, a lot of people make is that with anything in business, if you're going to invest time and resources and, and money into it, it needs to be for a purpose. And the, the answer for some people might be, you're right. You don't, you don't need a website that sells. In fact, you don't need a website at all. There are other marketing channels that would be much more effective for your type of business and you should go and optimize those, but you just, you should still optimize those with conversions in goal yes. because, because if yeah, otherwise the whole, the whole thing's pointless. Right. So, um, and, and, and the other thing is you, you get people that they might not necessarily be focusing on conversion, but they're still spending money driving visitors to the website. So they'll still be investing in search engine optimization to rank for certain things. They'll still be maybe, you know, doing stuff on Facebook or social media or Google ads in order to drive visitors to the website. And without having a, a goal in mind or without optimizing to a goal, then you can quite quickly just burn through a load of money and not really understand what happened to those visitors or who they were, why they came, why they left. And you learn nothing that way. We do have clients where the goal of the website is, you know, to make the brand desirable, highly, you know, to, 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 so that people visiting will perceive the brand to be luxurious and highly desirable, you know, the kind of stuff of dreams. And, and that's great as well, because we say, OK, then our goal in that case is to beat your control in terms of, you know, the visitors who see the new version of the site will perceive it to be more desirable, more luxurious. And that can be set as a goal. It's a different way of measuring it, but it's still, you know, let's not pretend that these things are so nebulous as to be unmeasurable. 
you know, the, the, the type, the ways of measuring them are different. And we can do panel tests where we ask people to look at two different sites and say which one is which one they perceive to be more luxurious, for example. But but the whole thing is to let's not pretend these things are aren't measurable. Let's a, let's set out what the goals are, how we're going to measure it. And let's let's double down on actually making sure that these things happen rather than just going on a kind of a avoid it you know rather than avoiding accountability that's right and it brought to mind avanesh kaushik's forward to the book where he talked about why testing and experimentation is uh, so helpful and one of the things that it does is it helps to get rid of hippos which he describes and i've heard this before the highest paid person's opinion in the room so, in other words, you, you are then able to hear less of, well, I think this, I think we should do that. Well, let's test it. Let's test it. And I think the book, uh, amongst many other things, shows you how much testing you can do. And uh, it's almost like a, a soldier putting on um, night vision goggles for the first time, <laughs> being able to see, even for myself, I was, able, I was reminded of all of the, the great testing that uh, can be done. But let me ask you a question that might surprise a lot of listeners who think this is really, really really complicated. Can you explain why doubling a website conversion rate is actually easier than it sounds? The great thing is that it doesn't, your website is is a whole series of micro elements. And so to double the conversion rate, you don't need to, you don't, much as it's, it can sometimes be done with one amazing idea, uh, to double your conversion rate, all you need to do is increase the conversion rate of your ads by 19% then increase the conversion rate of your landing page by 19% and your shopping cart by 19% and your checkout by 19%. And so because those things compound, then just those four improvements altogether add up to 100%. And that might sound daunting to, you know, to get 19%, but for those things, you'd only need to make a 1.76% improvement to 10 aspects of the landing page. So if you were to improve the company's tagline by 1.76%, then the headline that by the same amount, then the introductory text, the offer, the guarantee, the picture, the readability, the usability, the navigation, the products, the pricing, the offers, the premium, the testimonials, the call to action, the site layout, the return policy, uh, you know, each one of those things, it's really quite easy to get those those incremental improvements. But together, they all turn into they're up because they are multiplicative. They all add up to become um they, they they make a huge difference on turning a website from the kind of you know frictiony kind of conversion funnel to one that's equivalent to like a like a, a water slide. <laughs> right, and that is the what you describe as the power law of CRO. And for me, it was like looking at compound interest over time. It's just amazing how uh, if you if you actually think about it, even just the things you just described there, they can really start to have an enormous um, cumulative effect. But let's change the topic here. There are a lot of marketers listening, a lot of uh, marketers who are sort of uh, in transition. And if they're in mar marketing, they, they'd better be <laughs> learning new skills. A lot of students, young folks. Explain why CRO is a great career choice. Yeah. And in our experience, the best strategy is to create more value. Um, whatever your role is in an organization, if you can create more value and, and demonstrate that, it's um, it puts you in a great position, and and CRO allows you to reliably do it and to prove that you've done so. 
and A-B testing allows you to do this. There's a serious shortage of people who've got proof that they can grow businesses. And amazingly, most marketers' resumes have no quantifiable evidence that they've ever created value or grown a business. And we see with, with many of our clients, followers, and team members, thanks to CRO, they've got amazingly incredible success stories on the resumes. You know, many of our clients have won awards for fast growth. Many of our team members that work with our clients have measurably grown their employers' businesses by tens of millions, some of them. And it really is a fascinating subject as well. And, and as far as what you learn, when you start measuring what you create and you start kind of researching what motivates visitors and what motivates people to take action. You're not just growing a business, but you're building up a huge library of experience based on what works and, and what doesn't, which is equally as important. So as far as career choice goes, um, we find it just endlessly fascinating, but also it gives you such insights into what actually works and evidence that you can that you can create value for a, for an organization mm, yeah. and that's um, that's quite a rare opportunity also i would say there's there's a strange phenomenon whereby you know how it is when someone says if you if you're talking and someone says oh do you want to bet and suddenly you kind of move into a different mode where you think oh right i'm betting money here um what do i definitely think and and it's the same thing that happens with marketing where um, we we had this one client who we were talking about um, changing the pricing of a product and he entered the, the the CEO entered the meeting halfway through and he said, what are you talking about? And we said, we're thinking of changing the pricing. And he listened and he said, well, I think we increase the price by $10 and we'll sell just as many and let's just do that. And we said, OK, we'll test it. And he said, what do you mean test it? And we said, well, this was in the early days before we were testing everything. And, and we said, we, we said, oh, well, we'll run an A-B test. We'll know by next week. And he said, well, oh, well, I think it'll make no, I think it'll make no difference. What do you think? And we said, well, we don't know. Who cares? We'll test it. And he said, well, maybe it's a bad idea. Is that what you're saying? And we, said, <laughs> we don't. And it was really strange how it completely changed the conversation when someone knows that the true correct answer not only exists, not that there, not only that there is a correct answer, but that the correct answer is turning up on Monday morning <laughs> to announce itself. Right. It's surprising how it completely reframes the game that everyone you know, that we're playing. Yeah, and I think you heard the sound of a hippo uh, leaving the conference room. So let's transition to another topic, which is about uh, what you all call scientific web design, which is surprisingly simple, but very hard to do. Could you talk about what scientific web design is, as you describe in your book, and, and talk about the principles of it? What's surprising is that you say that fewer than 1% of marketing decisions follow these, these principles of scientific web design. Yeah, and you can kind of tell when you're using websites that that's the case. Mm -hmm. Because um, even, even today, it's a frustrating experience doing a lot of things online, booking a vacation, you know, signing up to a financial product, get, you know, getting a credit card or a mortgage, um, signing up to use some software. It's never as smooth and as seamless as you would hope. When you think about your experience as a website visitor, you often know why you're not signing up to a website or why you're not taking action or what your objections are. But there's very little attempts or mechanisms in place for the website owner to capture those insights from you. So just as a as a visitor to the web, it's it's fairly obvious that those feedback loops aren't in place 
to improve the website based on your personal user experience. And the one thing we found as far as scientific web design goes, it's um, we've, we've been quite privileged as an organization that we've worked with many of the world's leading websites. And we've been doing this for a long time. We've been running split tests on websites for well over 10 years now. So we've kind of had insights into what works and what doesn't. And we've also been quite privileged that the kind of organizations that seek us out are those that are already running experiments and already have quite sophisticated marketers on their teams who want to try things and want to understand what works and what doesn't work. And um, it's quite surprising that the main principle, that, yeah, the first principle, is that the top companies design for function, not aesthetic. Yeah. Now, does that mean they don't focus on aesthetics at all or explain the concept of an Olympic racer who runs really, really well, and then you say, okay, well, let's also give him or her a spoon on which to carry an egg while they race. Yes, exactly. People say, well, what's the harm in making it look? And obviously, when we say design for function, not aesthetics, we don't mean don't design for aesthetics. We just mean if aesthetics is one of the goals on of the website, then you know, then factor that in and count that as one of the goals. The problem is most companies aren't. That's not the primary goal. And and yeah, in the way, in the same way, people say, well, what's the harm in making it look nice on the way? You say that's great, but the problem is it's when it becomes a, when it becomes a goal, because yeah, in the same way that like, like giving an Olympic sprinter an egg and spoon to carry while he runs, they don't realise that like beauty, like an egg and spoon, tends to slow progress to a, a crawl, and so yes, there is a cost to it, and and the cost is much greater than than almost every web company appreciates. There's a reason why all the top 100 websites, the you know the the companies like Amazon and Google and YouTube and Twitter and Facebook, they all have a look that's largely text-based and largely functionality-based and it's and and that's why it's it's that you can't have both unfortunately and the cost of deviating from the primary goal is usually enough to is for to make the site lose and at least at least for a certain type of design um lots of those sites end up being beautiful but in a way that's very simple and it's a, it's a you know in the same way that functional design is often beautiful but beautiful in a very non-baroque kind of way yes yes well and that uh so the the first principle is uh balancing aesthetics with functionality and if you steer hard into functionality you'll have a beautiful site. Exactly. I'm oversimplifying it. But then the second one is that the top companies carry out extensive experiments on their website. That's right. It comes back to what you said at the start, Douglas, where A-B testing is the way that an experiment or the way that industry and almost every object around us was created using experiments. You know, the table, all the materials of the table and this microphone we're speaking into, the aluminium, will, it will is the result of just, you know, hundreds of thousands of hours worth of experimentation. Um, the web and, and services in general, hard, even now, like a hundred and... 40 years or whatever it is after the industrial revolution almost all service companies don't adopt the same kind of experimental and iterative approach that the product world is you know is a prerequisite cars would not exist if they if the whole process was run with the same level of 
organization and sophistication as most service companies are run. Yes. And so, yeah, A-B testing is essential because because websites do allow services to be carried out in that kind of experimental way. Right. And, Carl, you have a PhD uh, from Cambridge. Uh, you're, you're a scientist. But for the listener out there, you don't have to have those kind of uh, credentials in order to uh, enjoy and benefit from lots of testing. The great thing is that uh, is A-B testing software is readily available now. Google's is free, and so absolutely not. It's it's easy to use, and it's, it's great in, in two ways. One is it, I'd say even if someone, the first few A-B tests reveal so much about the nature of, the reality of measuring things, that it's it, it helps both in terms of, uh, like an accountability thing, but also in terms of like we talked about before about adjusting your mindset to realize that the truth is a real number that's going to turn up, you know, next Monday morning. Right. And the third principle is for reasons that are subtle, the top companies make frequent incremental changes and rarely, if ever, have huge site redesigns. Now, gentlemen, as I told you before we started recording, that really hurt because we're in the middle of redesigning the website for our agency. But I then cracked open the book, as I've done a few times this week, to read from it aloud. And I said, folks, this will be the last one we ever do. <laughs> and everyone was quite happy to hear that. But <laughs> that's very interesting, though. You still get a lot of people and companies that want to, that come to you and say things like, we want to completely redo it? Oh, yeah. Um, I'd say the the tragic question that we get asked a lot is, hey, I've just had a brand new site redesign and it's performing worse than the version it replaced. Can you guys help just to get the lost sales back to where they were before the redesign? And then you almost have to rebuild the site It's again. incredibly common. Not even almost. Page by page, <laughs> experiment by experiment, we, we fix what's kind of often terrifyingly disastrous for the client. Yeah, and... Um, we see it all the time, and it's a real frustration because there's a, there is a simpler way. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and it's a way that's much less painless. So do you spend a lot of time trying to talk clients out of completely overhauling their sites instead of just starting with some testing? Absolutely. Absolutely. And to be honest, it's you don't really have to do that much talking when you actually start working on it the correct way. So typically when a, when a client calls us and says, we'd like to grow our business – um, even those that are thinking of a website redesign, the first thing we'll do is we'll say, well, let's just look at what parts of the website need attention and why those parts of the website aren't functioning as you would like them to. So let's not, you know, let's not go to some wireframing software or let's not go to, you know, designing a whole new site or rebuilding the, the thing from scratch. Let's just look at what part of the website at the moment is performing well which part is underperforming and try and understand why that's the case. And quite often it'll be something that, you know, doesn't require a huge redesign. If, if you're taking people to a landing page and they don't understand the value proposition, then you don't need to redesign your website. You need to optimize and improve your value proposition. If someone's landing on your website and they're not buying your product because they don't trust that the product does what it says, then Testing adding a guarantee is going to be much more fruitful than redesigning your entire website from scratch. Yes. And, um, and, the, and the companies that are winning and the companies that have adopted this scientific web design and these principles, they get this and they never have big redesigns and they never they, they change things 
iteratively and, and sometimes subtly, we're always the user in mind and testing whether it worked or not. And you can you can test and iterate your way to growing your sales much, much, much faster than if you went through some big whole redesign project. Yes, and I would think that actually that helps your credibility as a company enormously when you say, let's just test a few things because there are so many companies uh, in our world that are saying, sure, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll tear it down and build you a new one. Oh, yeah, we'll catch that track. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, 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 the, and the problem is we, it, it, we'll, we'll cash that check and we'll also make the project run over by four times and cash three subsequent <laughs> right. checks. Right. There's, there's a proper business model associated with having, you know, with quoting for a huge site-wide redesign. It's obviously much, a much higher value um, contract to bring in. Right, right. Well, let's go on. Uh, on page 75, you write that, most marketers do things to their websites that they'd never do to their bodies. <laughs> Ex explain the concept of that and the, the marketing pharmacy. Okay. So yeah, we, we use the analogy in the book of um, the most common causes of death in people are heart disease, cancer, stroke, respiratory infection, diabetes, and dementia. And on seeing that list, only a fool would rush to a pharmacy and start taking medication against all of those ailments just wolfing down pills for diseases they don't have. And, and, and such behavior would cause more harm than good. And someone who's ill and, and sensible, they'd go to, to a physician who'd first diagnose what's wrong and only then prescribe the most relevant remedy. And what I've just described sounds obvious for health, but it's not what most people do with their websites. Most people most web marketers run straight to the marketing pharmacy and just cram their web pages with every possible remedy. And then they wonder why their website's cluttered and converts no better or worse than the previous version. So yet we talk about something in the book called DIPS, which is Diagnose Problem Solution. Yes. And that's before making any changes to your website. First of all, understand and diagnose what's wrong with the website before you go making these fixes. And again, it sounds kind of obvious when you say it like that. Yeah. But if you were to speak to a lot of marketers who make changes to a website and say, well, you know, did you diagnose that issue? And how did you know that that was a problem? And how did the visitors report to you that that was something they were struggling with? Often the response is, well, you know, we, we just know this kind of stuff works or we just think it works. or We've been told it works. And as a result, you can waste a hell of a lot of time just implementing best practices and never actually make any meaningful improvements based on improving your visitors' lives. Because also, when, when you do do the um, diagnosis and identify the problem and then come up with a solution, what you find is that the problems aren't on the level of HTML or on the level of page elements. They're actually, the objections are questions and thoughts within the visitors' heads. So it might be that the visitor arrives on the page and doesn't know what it does. They might uh, know what it does, but they don't know why they need one. They might... Um, maybe they, you know, they aren't convinced that the product will do what it claims to do. They don't, maybe don't know whether it's compatible with their existing technology, or maybe they think it's too expensive, or they don't trust your company, or they don't, uh, they just think, oh, well, it, interesting, but I'll go away and think about it. All of those things are the real objections. They're not to do with particular page elements, but overall things that need to be fixed at the right place and time within the conversion funnel. And so, 
the job then becomes okay then if they you know if, if for example it's about trust then how can we instill a level of trust within them by using and there's whole you know there's a whole load of there's tens or hundreds of different ways of instilling trust but that's what web marketing is it's understanding those things and and being able to correctly come up with the right counter objection at the right time and you do go into it in the book about some simple things that companies can do to in tr uh, increase their trust and credibility and also uh, in fairness to the two of you there's an enormous section of the book about uh, i think it's 25 different ways that you could be diagnosing all these problems. You don't have to do all 25, but it's a big section of the book and we're not going to have time to, to go into all that. But the, the other thing I wanted to talk about was my feelings. No, I'm kidding. Uh, the, the, <laughs> the feelings that I yeah. had when reading the book. And that is that, and I may be the only one, I think that you all snuck in a very good book about marketing and psychology into this book about websites that people might not have expected. In other words, you're talking about value propositions. You have an enormous section on writing well <laughs> and about uh, you know the psychology of why people do certain things. And so it all comes back to the concept of you know, the really good companies and uh, websites really understand their customers. They have great empathy for them. And I, I was so interested in the one section of the book where you said, you know, why are so many websites confusing? It's because they're poorly written. The language itself, like you said, uh, it's not about the CSS or the HTML or the site architecture. Absolutely. Absolutely. We, um, I mean, we've soak up any tips and techniques for clear writing um, it's it's one of our obsessions. We've read over sixty books on 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 that subject alone on on writing because it's so important and because it's so yeah it, it's such a I'd say that, that chapter I think the chapter you're referring to is winning websites are written well if visitors can't understand your understand your writing you have to improve it and we pack into about what is it about ten pages it maybe it's a, a heroic more. effort uh, to to get like, that in there. Yeah, there's so many things within that little section that can completely transform someone's writing. And it's not just useful for for web pages, but in terms of literally everything that one ever writes, it's emails, you know, almost everything you ever write has a purpose. And you only have to do one reading test where you get someone to read something out loud just to realize how much the average person, even like a smart reader, struggles with almost everything that they read. And there are so many obvious, well, obvious once you know them, techniques that can just transform someone's writing and make it so that everything in their life becomes more like, what's the word, like frictionless, more more yeah. fluid, mm -hmm. because they send an email and suddenly you find, for example, that people are replying to your emails more because, because, you've, because the email has that same level of uh, effortlessness and clarity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think after reading the book, it's almost as if one of the things you say is it's not about your website. It's about the visitor. It's all about Absolutely. people. It's yeah. all, as, with ev as with everything in society, it's all about people yes. and how people think and it's understanding what makes them tick and the psychology yes. and what delights them and what makes them, what turns them off. It, it's all about that. And so they are basically half of the website's the most common problems that half the book is uh, 
the most common problems that web visitors have and then the following section which is you know again a good fraction of the book is the skills you need and the techniques and the tools and the all the tips to yeah. actually fix those problems and like you say douglas it's not about it's not really about websites is it it's about <laughs> Everything. About the human, you can use these techniques to optimize a movie or a press release or an email or a mm-hmm. wedding invitation. Yes, and and the book even goes on to talk about how conversion rate optimization. It's not just about websites. You should be looking to make uh, things uh, convert well or, or as, as frictionless as possible throughout the operations of your entire company way after you get off of uh, your website, but. Let's wrap up. Let me ask, if if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Your customers and visitors should be at the heart of every decision you make about your website. And any changes that you make to your website should be tested to measure if it actually worked. Well said. Well said. What books have inspired your work and uh, careers? Say, um, Tested Advertising Methods by John Caples. Mm, yes. It's an important. Oh, do you one. know it? Do you know it? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. It's been brought up on this uh, on this show. And our, our favorite books are ones that are dense in concepts and mental models for you know the kind of book that once you once you've read it, you see the world in a different way. Yes. And uh, and I know there's different types of books, and sometimes some books you know make one point and tell lots of stories. We like the ones that are just like you know like a you know kind of a storm of insights and that that's one of those it, it, we hope that ours is we, we that was our goal with ours we also love don't make me think by steve krug oh that's right you mentioned that in the book uh-huh which is um if anyone we think we think usability we, we literally think usability should be taught in schools and if there's no room for it on the curriculum then some of the subject should have to go instead. We think it's we think that being able to, for people being able to make things that get used is what's the point of making something if people can't use it? <laughs> and yes. so almost everything that ever gets created, you know, is terrible for the user, whether it's an email that they receive that they can't understand or anything that they read that they can't understand or a TV remote that they, you know, almost all technology. And so that, that's that's one book that that covers that in real, you know, it's a, it's a real example of usability itself. It's so enjoyable. The storm of insight that you describe is a great uh, expression, which I will now be stealing, with full attribution, of course. <laughs> what I have, I've experienced that with many of the books on the podcast, and what I like to say is sometimes they help to rewire my marketing brain just a little bit. And gentlemen, congratulations, your book has done that. Mm. So are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? I've very recently read and enjoyed Lost and Founder by Rand Fishkin, who, um, who I've heard on, on your podcast, Douglas. So, oh, um, thanks for listening. <laughs> yeah, and um, big fan of what Rand's doing, and we, we've worked with him in the past. And um, yeah, he's a he tells the readers a lot of things that a lot of other people don't disclose and don't talk yes, about. Yes, but, I mean, I, I know a lot of the books about marketing, but I guess that the bits of the book that I think are the most valuable to most business owners and entrepreneurs are the things about um, you know whether you should take investment or not. You know, um, having the values-based business, the, the kind of toll that running a business takes on an entrepreneur, oh, and yeah. all of the things that most people just don't share. So, that, yeah, very recently we've read and enjoyed that. 
That's a terrific Absolutely. one. And he explains why the myth is perpetuated. Mm-hmm. And he talks about, you know, in a, in a way that only Rand Fishkin can tell a story. He's just brutally honest about what happened, what he did right, what he did wrong. And, and it's full of such great advice for uh, anyone starting a business. Well, how best can listeners learn more about you and this book? If you visit our website, it's conversion rate expertscom slash book to learn more about the book. And you can also get a free sample from that page as well. Okay. And we'll make sure to include a link to that, uh, as well as links to your LinkedIn profiles and all the other books that you've mentioned uh, on this episode show notes uh, at marketingbookpodcast.com. And for you, dear listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode on your podcast player and clicking on the show notes link. The name of the book is Making Websites Win, Apply the Customer-Centric Methodology that Has Doubled the Sales of Many Leading Websites. The authors are Dr. Carl Blanks and Ben Jessen. Carl and Ben, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank Thank you, Douglas. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And that closes the book on episode 217 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Special thanks to our sponsor, Blinkist. To support the Marketing Book Podcast and start your free Blinkist trial or get 20% off your yearly plan, visit Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast or just click on the link at MarketingBookPodcast.com. And please join us next time as we welcome Tim Hughes to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about the book he has co-authored with Adam Gray and Hugo Witcher, Smarketing, How to Achieve Competitive Advantage Through Blended Sales and Marketing. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. This episode was produced by Sean Armstrong. This is is Dr. Dr. Carl Carl (laughs) Banks. Go again. Ready? Three, two, one. This This is is Dr. Carl Blanks and Ben Jessen. We We are are the (laughs) co-authors. You can't even read us the co-founders. This is going to be in the bloopers. (laughs) Definitely. Ready? Three, two, one. This, this is, is Dr. Dr. Carl no, Blanks. No, I say Dr. Carl Blanks because... Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Dr. Carl Blanks should probably say his own name. Exactly. Three, two, one. This is Dr. Carl Blanks. And Ben Jessen. We, we are, are the co-authors of, of Making Websites Win. Apply the customer-centric methodology that has doubled the sales of many leading websites. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Whether you like it or not. <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy, I might want to test that one. <laughs> oh, no. I'm, uh... <laughs>